Support for this podcast is brought to you by this summer's must-read novel, Harry's Trees by John Cohen. If you only read one novel this summer, and really you should read more than one novel this summer, read Harry's Trees by John Cohen. After the loss of his wife, Harry Crane plans to lose himself in the remote woods of Pennsylvania's endless mountains. But fate intervenes in the form of a wise old librarian who sets in motion a series of unlikely events that lead Harry back into the light. This uplifting story is a reminder of the enduring presence of goodness in the world, even when it seems dark. Discover the magic of Harry's Trees today. Download the audiobook or pick up a copy wherever books are sold. Like a bookstore. Or an online bookseller. But go to your local bookstore. Pick up Harry's Trees from a bookstore. Forever! Hello and welcome to the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker. I am not Ben Blacker, as you might be able to tell from the sound of my voice. My name is Brett Boehm. I am one of the co-founders of the Forever Dog Podcast Network. I am also the producer of this very podcast, along with some other podcasts that you may or may not be aware of. Treks in the City with Alice Wetterlin and Veronica Osorio. Three Swings with Rhea Butcher. Teen Creeps with Lindsay Katai and Kelly Nugent. I will stop the shameless self-promotion right now. Ben is taking a much-deserved week off from introing the podcast after moderating, I want to say, every single panel at the ATX Television Festival in Austin this past weekend. Uh, it was an amazing time. I got to be there. It was my first time going. Uh, it's a really, really tremendous festival. Amazing panels, amazing guests. And we will be um, airing many of the panels from ATX this year on the Writers' Panel in the upcoming weeks and months, starting today. The panel we have for you today was a highly anticipated panel on Netflix's American Vandal called Orchestrating the Perfect Untrue Crime. Take it away, Ben. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Stop clapping. Abruptly. Hi, everyone. Welcome. Are you having a good time? Great. Do you love American Vandal? All right. I was worried you were just squatting for the next panel. Is it Doctor Who? Are they showing? Uh, please give a big and very long round of applause to the creators of American Vandal, Dan Peralt and Tony Yacenda. The showrunner, Dan Lagana, and the senior vice president of long-form content of Funny of Die, Joe Farrell. Thank you guys for being here. I feel like we are solving the diversity problem in Hollywood. Um, Dan, Dan and Tony, um, this show, I was telling you backstage, and I'll tell you in front of all of these people, um, I really, I loved it so much. I enjoyed it. It is, I think, uh, so much more than people expect it to be. Um, what is wrong with you two? <laughs> what, uh, tell me about where this came from. What were the beginnings of this show? And what were you guys doing before getting the opportunity to pitch this show? Well, we had done a lot of shorts together, um, a lot of genre parody, and uh, mockumentary was always one of our favorite things to do, and so we were always kind of on the lookout for new genres, new tropes, and uh, it was Making a Murder that really made me realize that this was a huge trend, because you had Serial and The Jinx and Making a Murder all about within the same year, so I just said to Tony, we've got to do something on this, and Tony came up with dicks, so... <laughs> Yeah, you brought dicks to the party. <laughs> yeah, bring a lot. Um, the stuff you guys were making before, first of all, how did you two meet each other, and when did you start a creative partnership? Uh, we met at Emerson College in Boston, um, and we've been doing a bunch of comedy stuff at the web. We had a, a group called Woodhead Entertainment that was uh, doing videos for like four or five years, and then... Uh, towards the end of it, we started focusing more on documentary stuff. So we did a series of like 30 for 30 Space Jam, 30 for 30 Rocky IV. And, and are those out there? Can people find yeah, that stuff? Yeah, where, where can they look, find them? Are they some on are on College Humor. Some oh. are on uh, Yahoo. Yeah. They're all over Great. the place. Um, and then just kind of working, uh, doing digital stuff. And then we had this idea and we wanted to 
flesh it out and make it a, a larger, fuller story. Before we get to that, I'm curious to hear... <laughs> yeah. There's going to be a lot of innuendo. It's going to be a long hour. <laughs> Buckle up. Before we get to that, I'm curious to hear from each of you um, about comedy influences. What was the stuff that you loved growing up? What is the stuff that you feel like sort of formed you and your comedy brain? Both offices, actually, British and American, for different reasons. Um, I think the British is a little more in line with what, what we try to do with the tone of this show. Um, Freaks and Geeks was another high school reference that we loved. Uh, yeah, so that was great for us. And uh, Election was a big... A big reference for us because we wanted to do something that was satirical about a high school like that was. That was a satire of politics, too, and we wanted to make a satire of the justice system, all Trojan horsed in, in a dick joke. <laughs> well, and that's interesting. Election didn't occur to me, but it's clearly the DNA is in there and it works really well. Because in success, you really care about this high school election, which you should. It's a very medium stakes crime, but it's the same as our show where somebody getting expelled. Like, this is the biggest crime in the history of Hanover High School. So for these documentarians, for this kid that's getting expelled, it's their whole world. And that's what election is, and, and it takes you back to when you were in high school, and all of this stuff was, was super important. Absolutely, and you guys really make the viewer feel that. Um, I'm curious about pitching this show, because so much of it comes down to tone uh, in that way. And I feel like it cannot have been an easy pitch. So I want to hear that. And then I want to sort of talk about tone uh, overall as you guys got involved as well. Well, I think our approach was, uh, I talked about it kind of conceptually, how this we didn't want to do a parody where we were making fun of true crime documentaries because we genuinely love it, I think. Uh, you know, I think Sarah Koenig's a genius, and she and the what she did in Serial, bringing us in as like a an unreliable narrator, uh, really uh, helped us tell a story. Helped her tell a story in a way journalists weren't able to do before her. And like maybe we can put that into a, a fictional narrative. So I would talk about it more conceptually, and then Dan would treat it. Hold like, up pictures of ball hairs and. Point- <laughs> And point at them to execs and ask them to treat this seriously, which thankfully they did um, for some reason. But um, it was super fun. So, they, so it, it, we wanted to make sure they got as invested in the in the mystery as they were in the comedy of it. So we wanted to hit both elements, but we knew the show wouldn't have appeared successful. It wouldn't seem like a, a good endeavor unless we really sold them on the mystery as well. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point. Um, and an important not, thing. Not to a know. common way to pitch a show either. I mean, it was right. really brave. Well, I think. So I, I work. Uh, I obviously work on the show with these guys, uh, but I also work uh, full time at Funny or Die, which is Will Ferrell and Adam McKay's company. And so when they came to us, I think um, I'm a huge fan of true crime docs just in general. And so I was excited when Tony and Dan brought it to us. And then I think it was in our first meeting, I said like, I hope I, what I was hearing from them was not the parody. And I think that's what got me excited. Was I said I hope you guys find a partner that is courageous enough to just let you make a true, real documentary and not make fun of it every you know, three or four minutes. And I think Tony in the meeting said, yeah, that's exactly what we want to do. And so you know, I think the pitching process is always fascinating. Um, you know, I think we started, we worked with you guys for you know, a couple weeks to get like a 12 to 14 minute pitch where they did sort of act like real documentarians in the room um, we didn't say we started as if it was a real crime. We talked about Hanover High and the, the September before this crime had happened. We had a case file of evidence that Dan Peralt would sort of slowly push evidence across the table at them as we were talking through it. And, uh, you know, it was there was no wink in the pitch, and uh, it really was a performance for these two. Like, it was amazing to watch. And then uh, we had interest from everywhere that we pitched. We pitched multiple outlets, and everyone was interested and then Netflix said, could you come back and pitch us the whole season? Um, and I, they said, could you come in uh, next Friday? And it was the Friday before. And we said, yeah, of course we can. We, <laughs> we, got, we got it all figured out. And so there were some late nights uh, sort of figuring it out. And then we went in, and I think that pitch was about 90 minutes, right? Wow. And then we went through every episode, every act, sort of showing them what they wanted to do. Um, and then uh, Netflix was able to go straight to series with us, which was very exciting. So it was really inspiring to see, you know, a lot of times people will come in and say, I have a great idea for a show, let's just go pitch it. To see the work that these guys put in to get that show was really inspiring. 
Um, Dan Lagana, before we get to you, I want to follow up one thing with Joe, uh, which is just to take a step back, and can you tell me about, in your experience at Funny or Die, like, how does this pitch process compare to other shows you've taken out? What's the usual process for you guys? Well, I think in general we, you know, there's a, there is a sort of, I think, DNA thread through the stuff we do with Will, where Will loves to do stuff that, like, really surprises people. And so, you know, he's done a Spanish-language film called Casa de Mi Padre. He and Kristen Wiig did a Lifetime movie that was called A Deadly Adoption that had no wink to it at all, was just a Lifetime movie until the last, like, 20 seconds when there was a laugh. Um, and then earlier this year, he and Molly Shannon did uh, Cord and Tish at the Rose Parade, and then they did the Royal Wedding live commentating. So, And they always love to never tell people it's a joke. He also played baseball, every position in a baseball, 10 games for HBO. So we are sort of trained working there to, like, how can we find ways to really surprise people? So every pitch we get, I think we look for that, like, how can we do something that people are like, I cannot believe they committed as hard as they did to this. So when these guys walked in with a show, it was just like, we want to do this, but we are, you know, we got to, you know, I think it was their level of like, we are not going to blink with this. Um, and that really was when we knew it would be a good partnership. And was it, from your perspective, was it always meant to be a series? Was it always meant to be multi-part? Yeah, 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 yeah that, was. Was always, okay. that was always the idea. We thought, when we were, when Dan brought up the idea of doing the true crime, like, if we could use the tools that our favorite documentarians use to kind of manipulate the audience in such a artistic way, could we get somebody to care about dicks? I'm like, I think we can do it. I, I really think. Uh, and we weren't sure. You don't know until it goes out to the public. But I'm like, let's, let's just do it. Let's go uh, full on from the writer's room through production and editing, like without flinching and just trying to be as straightforward with the documentary approach as possible. Yeah. I remember uh, my mom's really traditional and conservative and uh, amazing, but I remember I, I was home uh, in the East Coast, and I had a couple episodes that had not been released, and I said, I want to show you and Dad something. And so um, we watched, like, we were in the middle of the first episode, and she turned to me, and she said, what is this? And I said, just wait, just wait, it's going to be fine. And then we finished the first episode, and she said, how am I going to tell my friends this is what my son is working on? And then at the end of the... I said, let's just watch one more episode. And at the end of the second episode, she said, there is no way he did that crime. There is no way. <laughs> uh, Dan, at, at what point did you get involved with this process? And where were you? What were you doing at the time? It was, it was once the show was already set up. And they were looking... Netflix was looking to pair uh, Tony and Dan with a showrunner. And they started taking meetings. And uh, I, I have a... I, I have an 18-year-old stepson, and uh, I had a I had a story where he was actually suspended for um, drawing a penis on something, and uh, there was no proof that he did it, but he was he was suspended, and 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 I remember sitting across from the principal and being like, how can you possibly suspend this kid for three days when you have no evidence that this kid committed the crime? And uh, I remember sharing that story with Tony and Dan and, and the injustice I felt in that moment. Um, and I don't, we just, we bonded over that, and we bonded over our love of, uh, of, of documentaries, and we just, we had the same sensibility, and... Uh, I don't know. It just, it just it felt to me it felt like a, a good pairing from the second we sat down. The sensibility thing too. That that was obviously the biggest thing for us because we met with a, a lot of showrunners and uh, a lot of them would come in and and pitch jokes and try to elevate the comedy uh, in different ways. Where where Lagana, his the way he interacted with the material was like. Do you need the punchline at the end of this? I feel like you still get the joke, but it's realer if you take this away. And for Dan and I, like, oh, that's the direction we want to be steered and challenged in that way. And so that was like, uh, and I remember our meeting with Joe, too, the first meeting that he talked about was, he's like, I feel like this could be fun if we didn't do any stunt casting or cast any recognizable faces. It would feel more like a documentary. They're like, okay, that this seems like ideologically they want to make the same show we want to make. And just like all of the hiring we did was just people who kind of bought into how how seriously we were taking the joke. And when we, like for the director of photography, I remember where there was, um, you know, when 
now people know about the show, but at the time, this was a this was an odd ask to be putting out to talent. But you know, for the director of photography, we wound up hiring the DP who shot uh, the Amanda Knox documentary on Netflix, and he also shoots all of Chef's Table for Netflix. And so, I think Tony intentionally was like, "I want someone who." knows how to shoot premium documentaries. So that language is just part of their DNA as well. Editors, too. Yeah. Documentary editors as opposed to comedy editors. Yeah, guys who cut for Michael Moore. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, Lagana, you were telling me that the writing staff that you guys brought in was mostly new writers. Yeah, I mean, on paper, we did not look like the funniest group of people, you know? <laughs> <laughs> on paper. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we were... We were looking for we were looking for journalists. We were looking for uh, people that wrote for their school paper. People that were passionate about telling different types of stories. I, I didn't I didn't care if you'd been in some big comedy room. It was uh, it was it was sensibility first. I mean, we did we did read a lot of scripts. I mean, we read over two hundred and fifty scripts and sat down. We made five hires. You know, yeah. what what was the stuff that you all were responding to? Uh, I, I really respond to people that are. I guess I use the phrase delicate with the page. Like, I really like people that care, like detail-oriented writers mm-hmm. that care. Like, I, if it's a drama, if it's a comedy, the, the, de- the these people that were extremely detail-oriented, th- yeah. those were really the people that got the meetings because we knew what kind of dig and what kind of dive that we were going to be doing, and we needed that attention to detail. Yeah. Uh, that was the thing that sort of astounded me in, in watching the show is, is that attention to detail. And it seems such a difficult show to break to me, but you guys had to go in and do this 90-minute presentation breaking down the season, so presumably you had a pretty good idea of what the 10 episodes or the 8 episodes were going to be. Um, what was the job of the writer's room after that, you, with you having that framework? We also, so we had like the, the spine, mm-hmm. um, but then we came in and we put everything up for grabs, and the first week we're like, yeah, this is, I think this is a, a functioning version of how the season could operate. But well, let me let me stop you here. And a pitch is a yeah. different blueprint. Absolutely. Yeah, right? I want like, to sort of dig yeah. in on that. So so in that first week, what was stuff that went away? What was stuff you discovered that we have now seen in the show? Well, Nana's party came from one of our actual writers who had who partied at a Nana's place. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was a very important hire. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, I mean, for both season one and season two, uh, we always know where, where we attempt to know where we're going before we really get into the middle of it. So we start, you know, obviously we, we, we start with a crime, but we, uh, we really got to figure out where we're going before we fill in anything else. So uh, as Tony said, a lot was up for grabs in the, in the first few weeks before we really tried Well, including the big question, I don't want to reveal, like, the first week... Remember, you spent a lot of time on a, the, the biggest question, right, right, about Dylan. Yeah, did he yeah. do it or did he not do it? I mean, yeah. we, t- we talked about that as a group. We talked about that for a month before the room even started. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, didn't, we, didn't have, we didn't have an ending. Yeah. I mean, we, we went back to kind of how we that, – that kind of re- – we, we reverted to the, the original spine. But then there were like a bunch of uh, – there were a bunch of episodes that were reversed. We had this like wonky third act in our first episode that now it ends cleanly mm-hmm. with uh, the did you the, get a hand job? The, did, did you get a hand job? <laughs> uh, yeah, and Real that was stuff. never that wasn't the out. That was like it's weirdly truly the, in the middle. who shot Jr. of our time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's so much that. What were, yeah, what were some of the wrong roads that you and the writers went down? Or what was stuff that well, was like it wasn't, heated was a, discussion but didn't was quite no, fit? There was no wrong roads. It was how much time were we going to dedicate to things? Like I remember like episode two, there was talk of it being just a full day with the Wayback Boys. Yeah. And then we yeah. were like, how, how do we fill a full <laughs> episode? I mean, it might be super funny, but does it, does it keep the engine going in the same direction that we want to be going? And a lot yeah, of the structure was, can be... And that's dig- how we had it in the pitch, too. Like, a full day with the Wayback Boys. And then, yeah. like, a full day at summer camp with mm-hmm. Alex Tromboli and all yeah. these things. It's like, no, we need... And we, and we started, like, kind of pushing things together and... Uh, well, yeah. that, it's, what's interesting about that, just even attempting that, is it sort of pushes outside of the thing that's being parodied. Like, you don't often see that kind of a full day with a character in mm-hmm. this kind of uh, documentary format. 
So it makes sense that you would find your way back to that. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Uh, not a question, just an observation. I also you think there was... Say, oh, sorry. Oh, just like a lot of our story points, a lot of our, our, our structure is, is adjusted in post. And the way we, we try to shoot as much like a real documentary as possible, and what that allows us to do is, you know, if something's not working or, or there's, a, there's a, a particular part of the case that needs to draw more of our attention, a lot of that can be adjusted in post, mm -hmm. you know, and much like a, a doc, real documentary would. And of course, voiceover helps us with that as well. Yeah, we write a ton of voiceover in post. Yeah, right. Sure. Yeah. And then we also let our actors do like full interviews in addition to like what's scripted so that sometimes if it's ever feeling too scripted, we can pull some weird question that our 19 year old actor wrote in his notebook and ask to an actor who didn't know he was about to be asked that question. Then uh, those moments of spontaneity can help it feel more like a documentary than a mockumentary. And it, it also gives us a lot of flexibility uh, in terms of the structure and where how we hit the different turning points in different episodes. Tony had a really cool on-set technique. Um, you know, a lot of times on comedy sets, especially the ones that we're on, you'll do the scripted take, the second one, a third for safety, and then the fourth. They're like, well, let's just now screw around now. Let's just see if we get, you know, something fun and... It's a chance to do alts and improvising and stuff like that. But what Tony would do is he would start with an improvised take. Had nothing to let's just do. And sometimes they were like 10-minute takes of just the characters improvising in their world, in their space. Maybe we get to the story points. Maybe we don't. And when you started day one with that, I think I initially was like, oh, what this is going to be, this is going to be a mess. We're never going to make it. And then quickly I saw what he was doing. So I'd love, maybe you could speak a little yeah. bit to that. Yeah, I, the idea behind that is when, I feel like when you do improv improvisation after you've done the scripted takes, what you're really just doing is like fishing for alt, alt punchlines to a joke that, that you've gotten. And sometimes that can work and that can be really funny, but we are not just looking for alt jokes. We're looking for like moments of spontaneity to make it feel more like a documentary. It's more of a performance thing than it is a... And also like the camera people don't know the blocking. Like it's once they know the blocking, then they're panning kind of at the perfect time and the jokes are framed up perfectly. Uh, so that real raw spontaneity from those first takes will always go and like, oh, can we pick a, pick a flawed moment right here to make this scene uh, feel, feel less scripted? So That's that was really something we really relied really on. Smart. I'm, I'm curious to hear a little more about the directing. I mean, you all had this amazing cast who had various levels of experience. And I'm curious to hear about the directing of these actors and sort of drawing out what you needed from them and different approaches to different kinds of actors. Um, yeah, we... Uh, for the most part, we didn't want to cast, like, chameleons who were playing a completely different personality than, than they had. Like, Jimmy Tatra is a very smart actor, but... His, his general, his general essence yeah. is pretty close to Dylan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy, so, any thoughts? In the <laughs> so philosophically, in casting, that's one of the things we we wanted to do. Um, and then once then, then there was like Caleb Worthy. Caleb Worthy is he one just, who's just an he wanted it. Like the kid didn't wash his face for two weeks because he wanted to have pimples that looked he real. Plays, uh, yeah. He was Alex Tromboli. Alex Tromboli, yeah. But he, but, and he's a really handsome, charming uh, kid that you would love. Sure. Uh, but, but other he, than that... Yeah, but he came on and played close. the weasel. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I mean, we looked at, in casting, I think we looked at hundreds and hundreds of kids. Um, Wendy O'Brien was our casting director, and she did an amazing job. And I think, you know, the challenge, you know, these guys gave her was we, you know... As much as possible, we don't want faces that you immediately register of like, oh, that person. Mm -hmm. And then stylistically, we saw some great actors, some very well-trained actors. But there is a, there's an interesting element that I think actors need to have for this is just it does have to appear that it's just real. The minute you feel that there's a performance, it can tip. So then once we have that at our baseline where these characters kind of can just default into the energy that their characters are, are supposed to, or the actors have the energy that the characters are supposed to have. Uh, then w we let them, we give them a lot of free reign where we would do stuff like we, we would write a two-page document for Alex Tromboli mm -hmm. to be like, this is what you actually saw on the, 
in in the parking lot. This is how close you were to the vandal. This is what actually happened on the dock with Sarah Pearson. This is what you said to Shapiro the day after the all of these things. And then we had we talked to our documentarians about the crime. Like these are the types of sound bites you're trying to get from the people. And uh, we just like cast a really wide net. And it was just about getting tons of footage and then in the edit picking the the, the perfect I mean, moment we also struck gold with tyler alvarez yeah. i mean his his com- yeah. his commitment like we have we have all these scripts we have all these pages we have this whole crime this kid has his own fucking notebook right like he's he's got all his own theories and we're like yo we're like he, he would just he would just keep going after the take is over he, he's got he's got a series of his own questions he, if we had we had uh 25 days to shoot eight episodes, yeah. so we didn't have as much time as we would like. But there, I'd be like, he'd be like, How much time do I have for my questions? What kind of questions did he have? Well, he was curious about, he was as curious as his character would be. Like, the, the actor himself is so curious. He's perfect for the role because he has so many questions as soon as he hears what our next season or our next thing is. And so, yeah, he wants to know every detail about whether whether that handjob did not happen or not. And, you know, there, there are so many details to get to the bottom of that that he wants to ask Alex Tromboli. He could, he could run a three-hour interview with Alex Tromboli. With, sure. Without us. Yeah. It was so funny to see Tony on set because Tyler would be asking those questions and he would just get a little too on the nose with the crime. And you'd hear Tony in the back like, no, no, can't ask that. Yeah. Can't, I can't ask that. Yeah, but there would also That's be... T- the best case scenario, but, though, is they're immersed in it. There would also be times where, like, you just... I'd let the camera run. And I yeah. know, like, you just needed, like, uh, 30, 30 seconds of, like, little... And, and I'd let the camera run for, for 20 minutes, and I'd come back like, that was amazing, right? And people were like, no, 95% of that was completely unusable. I'm like, yeah, but 5% of it was unbelievable, and you only need... Yeah. But I will say, it is those moments that I think make the show, that it's you just get a shot of someone reacting, even. Um, and it's stuff, you know, like you mentioned The Office, it's stuff yeah. we used to see on there, but we get to live in it a little more on American Vandal. It's really nice. I remember the question. So so uh, Tyler came up with the question to Dylan, uh, or to the Wayback Boys, of like, if he actually committed a crime and you knew that he did it, would you rat on him? Or would you... Yeah, like, in, if you were in school and you saw him cheating on a test, would you... And it's like this really wordy, <laughs> weird question. And then they were, like, kind of, like... Yeah, they were confused by it and then answered it in a really honest way. And, like, it was just a moment, like, a room full of 30-year-old writers wouldn't have written a question like that. And it was a perfect little moment. Like, oh, yeah, this is a documentary made by high school filmmakers who are interviewing high school students and those elements like yeah. really that, helped elevate it. That, that has to be why, you know, in part it feels so real. The other part is the writing that you all did. Uh, and, you know, you may be 30-year-old writers, but you had to put yourself in that place of what it was to be in high school. And you talked about, like, the writer bringing up Nana's party. Was there yeah. stuff that you all drew on from your own lives that we can see in, in the series? Uh Specifically, the the morning show. My high school had an AV club with the Friday show that uh, I starred in. Not a big deal, but um, <laughs> I think a lot of people recognize yeah, you from that. No autographs, please. Um, but uh, but it, it, that was perfect for us because it was like if there was the the high school version of Sarah Koenig would be an AV club kid and like would want to get down to the biggest case that's ever happened to the school. So it was like a, it was just a nice convenient element of high school to to get us into that world. What about you guys? I mean, for me, it was I spent as much time with my 18-year-old and all his friends as possible. Because the, the truth is, it's for me to try to generate something that felt authentic, I, I don't know. That didn't, that didn't feel like the smartest route. I, I'm more of a listener. Like, I, I would just kind of, like, soak in. I would take 10 of his friends paintballing and listen to all the things they said to each other and the rhythms in which they speak to each other and just steal it. There's <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of things that... And just talking about our own high school experiences, and then talking to high school high schoolers, and like, is it still like this? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. But one of the things that we talked about early on was we watched stuff like uh, like The Breakfast Club or Mean Girls, where everything was so clearly delineated, where it's like the jocks and right. the geeks and the freaks or whatever. Uh, and I'm like, that seemed like more of an 80s version of high school. That wasn't necessarily our experience, which was a little bit more of, of a melting pot. Mm-hmm. And we asked the kids today, and they're like, oh, I think it's even more so, where it's like, it's kind of, 
it's uncool to be in a clique. Like right. it, now it's more about individuality and everybody wants their like own aesthetic. They use that word. Um, <laughs> and and uh, so we're like, okay, it's like our high, but there still is the kid who lies about getting with girls. He couldn't get, there still is the Dylan Mac, like there, there still are these individuals that we all, we all know, but it, 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 we wanted to create a high school that wasn't like this version you've well, seen a million times. And those archetypes have, you know, individual qualities to them. I think you guys really did a great job of showing that. Like even the jock is still a person uh, yeah, with yeah. a complicated life. Um, the other thing that is obviously very different to when we all went to high school is the prevalence of social media. Uh, and I love the way that that's played with in the series. At a basic level, like, what did those scripts look like? Was that, that stuff all scripted in? Was it found later? A lot of it is. I mean, that, that's the truth. I mean, those scripts are dense. Yeah. Um, they're, 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 they're broken very intricately. So yeah, we, we write as much as we can in because, mm. again, we only have 25 days to shoot all this, and the right. post schedule is tight, too. So we do generate a lot of more material in post as we go. But, yeah. It's, it's one of the funner details to play with, though. Like, it, it is something that continues in post. And we look at every graphic very closely to the point that if you paused it, you might enjoy something that you land on. Like, one of the characters happens to call Wingstop three times a day. <laughs> and if you pause it, you might realize that. But um, <laughs> otherwise, I just wasted a lot of my time. But, uh, <laughs> so I hope they are pausing. Um, but yeah, no, it's a very detail-oriented show. <laughs> uh, all right, I want to get questions from you all. Uh, there looks like there's an audience mic right here in the middle. Um, at what point did y'all decide to do a season two? Was that always in the plan, or just the success of that? You know, there's an arc to these panels. <laughs> there's an arc to these panels that I do. When we talk We're about still in the production. show. <laughs> now, let, do you want to talk about season two at all? Yeah, we uh, we had an idea for season two in the midst of the oh, yeah. season one writers' room. Uh, certainly wasn't fleshed out until this past summer. Um, Tony and I like taking road trips for creative reasons and for fun, and so we did a road trip and came up with some story points for season two. And uh, <laughs> we, so wanna... we got a place at the pool. <laughs> Do you want to tell us every single thing about it? <laughs> uh, Do. You... When, do, when does production begin? We like to go swimming. Yeah, we like to go swimming. We have a slideshow of their vacation. We're just going to run through. It's 84 pictures, but don't worry. Seven, seven seconds each one. I have all the pics in my phone if you guys want to come up out there. If you guys don't like season two, yeah. I was going to make this so much worse. Yeah. <laughs> Did you say the, the one thing that you meant to say about season two? Well, it's just like we never... We always... We had an idea of what we wanted season two to be in the midst of the season one writer's room, but it wasn't fleshed out until post-wrapped in uh, season one. And then we spent about, I don't know, it was about two months before the writer's room began again for season two. So we had a little time to figure out. And another thing we always talked about, too, is we had to kind of pick a lane with the aesthetic of season one, mm -hmm. how we shot it, how we were going to score it, how the graphics were going to look, all of these things we had stylistic decisions for season one and kind of pick a lane. But there are so many true crime documentaries we love that have different aesthetics. So for we always knew season two, like, oh, we could pull from all of these other documentaries that we love and make it feel completely different. So That's cool. I can't wait. Yes, stand up, please. At what point did you decide who drew the dicks and why? <laughs> there's, there's, I guess, multiple ways to answer that. There's like, we... Also, I don't want to spoil anything either if people are, are not all the way through. So I guess we, we, we came... Yeah. Um, we, yeah. Please leave. Oh, oh, really? Yeah. Okay. We're all okay with it. Okay. Now is the it, time. If it you, was, you shouldn't you be run out. I think it was always Krista, but for different reasons. Yeah. Uh, in the, it, it completely changed in the writer's room, kind of her character. Uh, there were elements of it that were, that were there. But how we arrived at it ended up changing completely. <laughs> well, so uh, you guys talked about how you have some of the best editors and cinematographers, you know, who are amazing documentarians. But this show is filtered through these like 16-year-old high school students, you know, who are pretty much amateur uh, filmmakers. 
was it difficult to kind of take the best in the business and kind of, you know, take it down to make it kind of look like something that these kids would make, you know, even though it looked very, very polished, you know, you still have to maintain that style. Yeah, we have, we have a logic and we had rules to uh, how much production value you can have in, in certain arenas. Um, I don't know how much I, I can say about it. No, don't say it. Okay. Um, <laughs> it was a producer's. It was a producer's dream because they'd come and they'd be like, "We don't know if the we we got that shot." I was like, "They're 17. They probably wouldn't get the shot anyway." So <laughs> let's just let's just move on. How did you find the balance between like the joke, the the dick joke, the mystery, and actually telling like character stories? Yeah, well, you know, we we actually cut a lot of jokes in 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 post, and those were some hard moments. But ultimately, it it was for the best. Like um, Alex Tromboli, for example, is the kid's hilarious. The, I love the character, and Caleb's great. But you know, when when you have a character land with too many jokes, then the audience comes to expect that and start watching it as if they're watching a conventional mockumentary as opposed to a documentary and a mystery. So it was a tough balance to say to to cut some things that we loved, but we knew we needed to do that to keep people invested the way we wanted them to be. Yeah, I think our approach was always mystery first. Yeah, right. We had the scaffolding of the whole thing is this dick joke. Like the the key elements is like okay, making a murderer, but instead of Stephen Avery, it's a dumb stoner. That's funny. <laughs> Dicks. That's funny. Like we have these like major elements that are funny, but once that's set. Then the approach was like completely earnest. All right, let's tell let's tell this this real high school story. Let's make it feel you know tense like a real documentary and get the the turning points to be really mystery based as opposed to to comedy based. And it, it pains me to offer heartfelt praise, but I do feel like these three like they saw what this could be. When I think even sometimes myself, we also partner with CBS and Netflix and Three Arts like there was a fear on a producer level of like, are people going to care? Will this last? Like, and I think it's when we, f- we saw some of the dailies and then the first cut come in, you could feel everyone's shoulders sort of go down. Cause it was just like, wow, like everything they had talked about for a year we were seeing on the screen, which was great. Um, I loved the ending, but it was a little bleak. I mean, it felt very realistic. It's like, yeah, he doesn't get the girl. He doesn't get into college, and everyone at school still thinks he's a total idiot. But it's like, did you ever toy with alternate endings that felt a little more optimistic, and why did you ultimately decide that the more realistic way was the right one? Uh, well, well, yeah, I think the more realistic way is the right one. Like, that was kind of... Uh, that, was, that was kind of the marching orders all along, right? Mm-hmm. I love that question too because yeah, too. that's that's what I want you to leave really feeling that this was Dylan's story the whole time. And if you're going to make a story about high school, basically we've been laughing at this kid for for seven episodes. We've been enjoying him being an idiot, and then turning that into empathy at the end for the kid that you went to high school with. You probably hated that Dylan Maxwell at your high school. And then you like grow to empathize with them in a way that I felt was was meaningful. I mean, was that always was the goal. That was definitely a note from Netflix. I mean, they were waiting. People were waiting for the dick joke at the end. They were waiting for that big laugh, and we just we weren't willing to give it to them. That's just not how this story ended, and uh, that wasn't the real version for us. The final dick was so sad. There was one more dick, but it was like the saddest. The one saddest of dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the saddest dick in yeah. cinema history. I think. <laughs> Better than Rosebud. Yeah. <laughs> I may not have understood that movie. <laughs> you won a Peabody Award. <laughs> Tell us about uh, yeah. uh, how was that experience? How did you feel? And what do you think they really reacted to? That, that was always the goal. <laughs> <laughs> we, we sat down like, let's win a Peabody Award. <laughs> No, it's it's one of the coolest things that's ever happened to us because we did we behind closed doors we had some uh, some lofty conversations about amb- some of our ambitions for what this meant, you know what I was just talking about empathy for that type of person in high school and what we were saying about the justice system, what we were saying about the the culpability of journalists in in, in this craze of true crime documentaries that we wanted to make all of all of these points. Um, but we never, that was never 
the goal was always to make people laugh and to get people invested in this mystery. So the fact that people way smarter than us like saw everything we we were going for in our our loftier ambitions. Is, and when we were at the really ceremony, cool. we were at the ceremony, and they they put you in line before you go receive your award. <laughs> and they were each show gets like ninety seconds, right? And so like there was this, like there, there was a documentary on the dying coral reefs, and then a, a ter- like a terrible shooting, like and then like something about the economic crisis, and like it was heavy, heavy stuff. And we just sat in line like, oh god. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I think it's to the credit of these guys. Like, there our little um, our little pre-taped clip package was basically the end of the last episode of the first season. That monologue about what it means to be a high school student and how you label yourself and how you're labeled, all of that. And I remember these guys writing that and seeing it. And I think that's I think everyone who sort of makes it through. So many of uh, my friends, whether they know exactly who did it or not, I think everyone was struck at the end. That final emotion you have is, I think, what really uh, means a lot to people. It's so rare that, um, you know, in a creative endeavor, the thing that we are trying to get across actually gets across on the screen. And it really seems like it, it worked for you guys. You know, things came together. Uh, you were all, you know, sort of working at the top of your game to do this. What were the challenges specific to this show? Well, we uh, we try to shoot as much like a doc, and that means getting a ton of footage. And we're perfectionists, so like we go through all of it. And so uh, some of it is just like just going through all the improv takes and, and everything, making sure we have the most authentic moments. We had a, a s- multiple units, uh, a stills unit, where we're just trying to like populate these kids' social lives. Um, many of, many of the times we shoot a still or an iPhone video, sometimes we don't have a specific place in mind for it at the time that we shoot it. We just want to be able to, to you know, refer to someone's social and make their lives feel as full as possible so that they feel like authentic characters. The, the writing is frustrating too, because something, sometimes something happens and a whole episode falls apart or, or a whole arc yeah, falls right. apart or, or a character isn't necessary or, or doesn't feel complete or real. And you're like, oh shit, we got to rethink way more than this 30 minutes. We have to rethink this whole this whole arc, you know. So, yeah. And I empathize with these guys because I think because the comedy is very unique, a lot of times when we're noting comedy, you just sort of let the people who have their own sense of humor, we're just facilitating their vid- but because this is a crime, logic comes into play and everyone has a sense of logic. So, noting them or reading scripts or saying everyone sort of has an opinion on what tips for them. So I, I think that it has been, at times, it probably was an avalanche of feedback of like, what feedback do they take? What do they sort of say, thank you, I know what I want to do, and that's a challenge. I do have a, a, a story I want to tell about the stills unit. Yeah. Um, so uh, photo stills are all the sort of yearbook photos, all that stuff. So we knew we needed a lot, but it was also something that when Tony's shooting the whole show with uh, the two Dans, uh, so Dan Peralt, down at the end of the thing, he became our the head of our stills unit with uh, a second AD and a photographer. And so all day, you would just see him with his shoulders up around his ears, walking around, pulling people and taking photos. When I say taking photos, we're talking in the thousands of photos. 9,000 like 9, photos. 9,000 photos, right? And he would disappear for hours around the high school, just taking <laughs> photos with random actors and stuff. So there was one night on set. It was a little bit of a tense ending, right? Everyone went a little, a little bit of overtime, yeah. A little, a little bit of overtime. Everyone was a little tense. And so uh, I remember getting home. And getting ready for bed, got in bed, and there's a text chain from all the ADs where they update you. And so this was two hours after we wrapped, after a little bit of overtime, I get a text from the first AD saying, Dan just wrapped his stills unit. (laughs) And I said, what? We wrapped two hours ago. What's he been doing? And you had been in the bowels of the high school shooting with no one knowing, working even more overtime. But that one still made the show. That got us the Peabody. So, happy with it. Uh, other questions out here? Yep. Uh, did you always know you were going to have the documentary released to the high school in as part of the show and how that would change the stories you were telling before and after and how you decided when that would happen? Yeah. Yeah, that that was that was an interesting part for us was that was like I think the the key to that was like how can we get Peter more access and the show itself going viral within the school we found to be a fun plot point um to get him more access to other people and and uh and and just propel the story forward so that was always in the plans yeah yeah and i think it came from more of a of a narrative place first before it came 
before the theme came too clear uh, to us because we wanted, like, he's telling this story and he knows all the angles of it, but he has to be releasing it in real time for it to become, like, a, a mystery that they can be un unraveling within the high school because people are seeing what's happening. It was a little bit of a trap, too. Like, all the conversations we had in hindsight, you're like, oh, the documentary's going to get shut down? No, fuck you, it's a TV show. It's going to get put back on. <laughs> right? So it was like, we were, we were mad at ourselves for coming up with it, but we liked, we liked having to solve the crime in real time, too. So it became weighing which was worse, you know? Was there stuff as you were um, breaking... Breaking the story, like it, it was also plot first, it was also mystery first. That you, as the room bumped up against the character, doesn't want to go this way, or the it's not a natural progression for the character. I as you made a plot big one, this and this is a little in the weeds, but I know you, we talked a That's ton what we're doing about here. This is it. ATX. Okay. Right? <laughs> I think the role of the documentarian, I think there was a lot of initial pressure on these guys to make Peter. An emotional, what does he think of it? What does he feel about who did it? What it, I want to see him get angry. And Tony would continually hammer the point back, you know, with these guys of like, he's also cutting the documentary. So, how, how you could speak to that. That was a real struggle. Yeah, because you'd think like, you don't want it to become a detective show. Right. It's, a, it's a documentary. So, there were a lot of notes and a lot like, well, Peter's our main character. It's really Peter's story. And I would say, it can't really be Peter's story because that way it wouldn't feel like a documentary. Like, of course, we really care about Sarah Koenig or like Andrew Jarecki in, in the Jinx. They're they're certainly characters, but it is wouldn't feel like a documentary if we yeah, started if was, like introduced him a love interest that's exactly, or like, if he was and, like giving him girl. his his own subplots. There's no way to service that and still have it feel like a true crime documentary. So it all had to be through subtext of how we were looking at Dylan Maxwell. Um, someone had a question over here. Crimes don't become documentaries without the fun sensationalism from the media. Um, and the preface of it, like, give me a Nancy Grace, Casey Anthony, any day. Um, how, when doing it with high school, did that come in? Because, I mean, these people obviously know each other from, like, years and years and years, so... Explain that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think uh, the the sensationalism and what we had long conversations about what draws us into uh, true crime and why it's become such a phenomenon. And our theory is that we are so fascinated fascinated with injustice right now, and as a society, we have this sort of this hubris where we feel like we, we are better judge and jury than judges and juries <laughs> and, and police. And like I can watch Making a Murderer and be like, but I'm a good judge of character, and I could see <laughs> if Stephen Avery's lying. Or, um, so we want to feel like that really uh, exists in, in high school, too, where like, yeah. I have a read on this person. I know what this person's like. Uh, so... I think that answers your question. And, and high right? school is all about snap, snap judgments, too. Yeah. Right? And that was thematically such a large part of the first season, those snap judgments being Yeah, wrong. everybody in high school is a little Nancy Grace. Yeah, that's Deciding right. what other people are like. And I think you also, you fill in the blanks so often. Like, I think if we went down the line right now and said each character, like, who was a Dylan Maxwell in our high school? We could all say a name. Mine was Dave Knapp. Like, we know, we know who these guys are. And the women, and so I think we're all guilty. Everyone in the room does it, did it, and I think it still happens, and so that taps into it. This feels like the definition of a word-of-mouth sort of hit show. So what was that like process like, like watching that unfold? And when did you know, oh, wait, people actually are like watching this and liking this? Yeah, yeah. Um, it, was, uh, it was interesting. I guess uh, we, the season one came out the same weekend that the uh, Emmys were, which, of course, we didn't qualify for because we had just come out that Friday. Um, but it was, uh, I remember looking at Twitter and like, oh, this is getting more of a response than we anticipated. So I guess we don't know the exact numbers, but it, it was nice to see the social response. And I think what it was, was seeing people really dive in, especially on Reddit, dive into the small details of the show. And to see that people were appreciating that really helped us realize that, okay, people are, are liking it the way we wanted them. To. And the, yeah, com and the like comedy the community, like, the yeah. comedy community too. Yeah. Like it was just instantly embraced 
by so many people in the comedy community. It was it was really rewarding because it's it's real it's really easy right now to live inside the bubble of your own little show. Like everyone that's part of a show thinks their show is the most important, unique thing that's ever come on television. And then <laughs> so it's like it's you. It, I don't know. It, it's hard. You watch so many people pat themselves so hard on the back, and you're like, dude, cut it out, you know? But uh, I, I, with this show... That was it, a subtweet of several panels going on right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we, we were all, always, like, cautiously reading reviews, cautiously going on Reddit, like, trying to approach it from a, a realist perspective, and then... Not you? Yeah, no, yeah. No. That's <laughs> a, I, I couldn't agree more. It's like, we were like, yeah, it makes us laugh. Yeah. We, we think it... But, that, there was that no was the expectation of how people would respond to it. Uh, so. so you believed in it, for, you know, having it made you laugh. You believed in the message of it. You believed in the yeah, character. Yeah, I, I felt it. that as an audience, I would watch the show yeah. and I would like that. But I've thought that about other stuff. But I've I think that's, yeah. that's also sort of where we are. Uh, like there's so much TV now yeah. and all we as creators can do is make the thing that we want to watch. And that's when right. it's of a high quality, people tend to get on board. Yeah. Um, I want to. I wanted to ask uh, just before we wrap up about populating this high school, uh, and the situation with extras and like this felt like a high school. And was it the same sort of group of extras and stuff coming in every day? Were you just shooting at the high school every day? How did that work? It felt so lived in. Yes. There, there, if you look closely, there are plenty of kids, uh, background actors, who you'll see in Nana's party, who we also see in the school. We didn't want it to be the exact same thirty kids though every single day, of course, because. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's a larger school than that. Um, I, I liked extras casting. There's there's one extra who kind of looks like Bruce Willis, not just like, <laughs> not just like in look, but like also in his late fifties. So like there was, <laughs> I don't love the shot where he appears, but uh, aside from that, I was very happy. Uh, we'll wrap up, uh, as we always do on this podcast, by asking you what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? Uh, what are you talking about with your coworkers, loved ones, the room that you are currently in? And Joe, let's start with you. Uh, I am re-watching The Staircase, which is on Netflix, sure. which I love. Yeah. I'm watching Handmaid's Tale with my wife. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, just uh, finished Wild Wild Country. I just got into The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. (laughs) These are all good answers. Please give a round of applause for all of the folks behind American Vandal. Thank you guys for being here. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.